Recovery Elevator, episode 369. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was, you know, like, oh, I'm having a glass of wine at the end of the day. That's fine. But I wasn't having a glass. I was having a bottle, you know, but that's not what I, that's not how I explained it to people. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we have Catherine. She's 45 years old. She's from Colorado and took her last drink on September 24th, 2021. Great job, Catherine. Listeners, our Ditching the Booze, the What, the Why, and the How course starts in eight days on Tuesday, March 22nd. Times are Tuesday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, followed by an informal parking lot discussion for Q&A. Listeners, this course is all about connection. Meet together as a cohort once per week for 75 minutes, participate in smaller breakout group discussions, and connect with others via the course coursework, which is assigned after each course session. DTB, Ditching the Booze, is our intro to an alcohol-free life course. If you are exploring a life without alcohol, then this course is a must. We'll cover accountability, routines, dealing with cravings, what cravings are, mindfulness, the science behind an addiction, spirituality, and more. Now, this course is for Cafe RE members only and is included with Cafe RE membership. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz, and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Now, let's hear from Kala Brands. Founded in Northern California, the team at Kala Ukulele has been designing and building ukuleles for over 15 years. Today... Kala is the most popular ukulele brand in the world. Kala's mission is to create affordable and high-quality ukuleles at every price point. The ukulele is super fun and fulfilling. Anyone can learn. And if you don't believe me, you can always ask Paul. This instrument has a remarkable ability to keep you feeling calm, centered, and rejuvenated as you learn, grow, and pursue your life in sobriety. If you're interested in learning more about Kala, their instruments, and even get free lessons and tips on how to play the ukulele, then head over to Kala's website. You can also use our link, kalabrand.com forward slash elevator, for 15% off on your first purchase at Kala. That's kalabrand.com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Kala. And again, I want to mention, I personally play a Kala ukulele, and it is a phenomenal sobriety tool. For example, you can literally write a new story for yourself. Most listeners are aware that we do sober ukulele courses here at Recovery Elevator. And uh, we had a beginner ukulele player named Cindy write something that goes like this. I am alcohol free. I am alcohol free. I am alcohol free. I am alcohol free. I love it, Cindy. Great stuff. Okay, let's get started. A couple episodes ago, I shared how Denver's first alcohol-free bar, Awake, is now franchising. I'm pretty sure this means that business is good. And now Portland, Oregon is getting their first AF bar as well. And here's a snippet from the press release that a listener recently sent me. After a well-documented spike in pandemic drinking, the alcohol-free trend is gaining steam. Now Portland, Oregon is getting its first zero-proof bar. 
Sucker Punch, the Portland-based business that started as a no-booze cocktail kit vendor in 2020, is launching an experimental pop-up in the Goat Blocks. The space at 1030 Southeast Belmont Street will be full service and offer a regular rotation of seasonally inspired cocktails. And yes, I did say cocktails, but I assure you that they are alcohol-free. Now, based on the successful attendance and feedback from Sucker Punch's past events, the bar will also host unique experiences like tasting flights and dessert pairings. And this spring, you can expect a brick-and-mortar store. So listeners, if you're in the Portland area, let's support our AF brothers and sisters and go check out Sucker Punch in the Goat Blocks. Huh. Sucker Punch in the Goat Blocks. Now that would be a great ukulele band name. Link for more information on this alcohol-free bar is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. There's one more thing I want to share with you before we get into our topic today. If you are still drinking or have recently quit drinking, most likely you've experienced or are experiencing brain fog. This can be difficulty in making a decision, finding it hard to stick to a decision, or not able to critically think well enough to make a sound decision. We often ask people in our courses, our chats, and our retreats, what is something you're struggling with? And brain fog is a common answer. And when I was drinking, yes, I had major brain fog. In addition, the neurons didn't quite fire like I wanted them to on my first day of sobriety as well. The good news I want to share with you is that my thinking or brain function continues to improve. In fact, I had two really bad traumatic concussions when I was 16 and 17, and I had always blamed my brain fog on the concussions. However, since removing alcohol, my cognition has improved and continues to improve. I've noticed a significant improvement in my critical thinking or problem-solving ability. Now, full disclosure, I'm still struggling with time zones, and if you're taking the ukulele course, you can confirm this. Uh, I showed up late to my first two office hours and totally missed another. But hey, progress, not perfection, right? Yes, not ingesting a toxic substance called alcohol does help, but here's also what I think has helped. Number one, meditation. Now, I am still big on meditation, but in 2018, 19, and 20, I probably averaged 30 to 45 minutes of meditation a day. Now, the science behind meditation and how it can rewire your brain is nuts, and there's tons of data to back that up. It can completely change the way you think and process information or data. In addition to meditation, I think plant medicines have helped, and for me, this was ayahuasca. Speaking of concussions, ESPN did a special on how the NFL is sending players with chronic concussion symptoms to ayahuasca retreats, and they're seeing amazing results. The third thing that has helped my thinking is being less reactive. When I'm not in a good thinking space, aka stressed, I can pause and come back to it later in the day or the following day when my brain waves are less frantic or less in a high beta state. Now, I was one reactive mofo when I was drinking, and none of what I just mentioned was possible. Another reason my thinking is clear is because I'm playing more music. Thank you, sobriety. Um, and with music, this is otherwise known as being in the present moment. And when I play music in nature, it's a double whammy. So playing an instrument or getting into a flow state or being in the present moment is extremely beneficial to the whole human body because it puts us into a state of coherence where all the systems are operating in concert, mainly the brain and the heart. In the brain, music helps get the left brain, the analytical side, talking with the right brain, the visionary side, and they begin to work together in harmony. Did all of this happen overnight? Nope, not at all. 
How much time did it take? Well, I saw an immediate spike in cognition 72 hours after my last drink over seven years ago. After that, be patient. Allow the body, mind, and soul to recalibrate. This period is called pause or post-acute withdrawal symptoms, not syndrome. And I personally like to call them healing symptoms. Again, listeners, be patient. Many of us reemerge from the grave when we quit drinking. You won't be doing long-form algebra the next day. Another big part of brain fog that goes away when you quit drinking is the indecisiveness or cognitive dissonance of, I'm not drinking today, and then six hours later, making a trip to the liquor store. Seriously, let's think about this for a second. You make a major life declaration in the morning, at least a couple times a week probably, and then later that day, all bets are off. Simply not putting yourself in the front seat of that roller coaster will free up tons of mental bandwidth. The next thing I want to talk to you about is the quote, you can be right or you can have peace. According to the internet, this is an Igor quote from Winnie the Pooh, but I think someone else said it first. Now, this is a big hitter quote, similar to the one that goes, the opposite of addiction is connection. And let me say the other quote again. You can be right or you can have peace. It's powerful. It's impactful. It's short. It's to the point. It's concise. Now, this one sounds simple enough until you have to put it in practice. At the fundamental level, this quote is referring to the ego who reinforces itself by being right no matter what. Now, we've all seen the people who just can't seem to apologize or admit that they are wrong, and we've all been that person as well. So this quote has stuck with me over the years, and it's one that I try my best to practice on a daily basis. But again, when life gives you an opportunity to be the embodiment of this quote, it isn't always easy. The other day, I was at a pet store waiting in the line to check out. The person in front of me was asking questions about their new pet. A lot of questions. While waiting, I turned 90 degrees to look at the plants for sale on the wall. When I turned back, probably 15 seconds later, there was a gal in front of me in line. Now here's the dialogue that Bruno, the inner voice, was telling me. How could she not see me? I'm standing three feet away from the register. I'm not even practicing social distancing. Of course this gal saw me. How could she? This is a total act of disrespect. She might as well have stepped on my left foot on the way to the front of the line. So I sat there for a second, and in my mind, the bigger me was saying, don't do it, Paul, let it go. Um, and someone was with me at the pet store, and they even told me, they said, Paul, don't do it. It's not worth it. And so here's what I did. I told myself the line, hey, Paul, you can be right or you can have peace. However, in that moment, I wanted to be right. So I tapped the girl on her shoulder, and when she turned, I said, Hello, would you like my spot in line? She realized what happened and immediately said, Oh, I I'm sorry, I had no idea. Would you like to go in front of me? And I said, No, it's fine. You can go ahead. Now, within 15 seconds of tapping the girl on the shoulder to let her know she ruined my day and possibly the rest of my life, I realized I just should have let it be. I knew it. But sometimes this work is so hard to practice in the real world especially after having kind of a longer day. Now, I didn't feel better telling her she cut in line, and I imagine the interaction we had didn't make her day any better as well. So listeners, here's the good news. Even though I did inform the gal in front of me that I was in line, I was aware or I recognized the situation. In fact, I almost let it go. But I still love myself today. I learned from it. 
and I'm sharing the story with you right now. All of this is progress. Now, I would still like to see the security footage just to see how bad she burned me. <laughs> Come on, Paul. We got to let this one go. Let's choose peace. Okay, before we hear from Odette and Catherine, let's hear about a better way to get help. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for a great introduction once again. And Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Catherine to the show today. Catherine, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for asking. And let's get right to it. When was the last okay. time you had a drink? The last time I had a drink was September 24th of 2021. Um, but I think I should add that the last time I had a really rough night and got totally drunk was the 21st of September. So the 24th was my sort of goodbye to alcohol day. Yes. And I want to hear more about this once we get into okay, sure. how you got to that moment, but thank you for sharing. And before mm -hmm. we do get started on all of the alcohol talk, please let us know <laughs> just a little bit about yourself, where you're from. Do you have a family? What do you do for a living? Any hobbies? Just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, we live in Colorado and I am married. Um, I have one full-time child. That's my um, biological child who's 10. And I have two stepchildren that are 18 and 16. Um, and they live in Mississippi with their mom. So they're not here with us all the time. I'm currently a stay-at-home mom, possibly looking at going back to work, but not sure. Um, 45. I don't know if I said that. And what I really like to do is read fiction mostly. Well, yes, only. <laughs> um, I love working out. I've been really into Orange Theory since getting sober. And we love skiing. I love Orange Theory. I feel like most <laughs> of the time that I talk about working out lately, most of my airtime speaking about fitness is taken on the Peloton because now yeah. I have one at home. But before my Peloton journey, I would go to Orange Theory two or three times a week. And it's such yeah. a great community. I love that you go. It is. It is. It's, it's really is. And I feel like I've met real friends and I've even shared my sobriety journey with people there, which might sound odd because I 
don't know everyone's name sometimes, but they're so supportive. So it's really been great. You know, I love that. I feel like, you know, not just in sobriety, but this is a perfect example about just friendship and how sometimes we kind of work in reverse mm-hmm. with these deeper connections where maybe you don't know the surface level things like their name or I don't know, their favorite thing to do, but then you know deeper things or more intimate things. And I think it's very just interesting how that happens. And I feel like it's an indicator that there was just a quicker entry point into vulnerability and things that are maybe harder to share. So I'm glad you found that. Absolutely. Thanks. (laughs) Uh, All right, Catherine, and let's give listeners some background on your history with drinking. When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your life anymore? What got you to start quitting? What got you here? So, yeah, I feel like the last 12 years has probably been the worst. Um, So just briefly in high school, I just couldn't wait to try it, to try drinking, but I wasn't I did it a handful of times. I went to one year of college and partied a lot, but it was never like an issue. To me, it was very normal. I hate to say that sometimes, but, you know, binge drink on the weekends. I was um, doing what I thought normal college age kids would do. um, And it wasn't really interrupting uh, my life. Um, I joined the army when I was 21 and drank with my buddies Again, it was no big deal. So when it really got interesting, to say the least, um, when I started drinking wine, I really liked wine. And I think that there's this myth that it's classy and it's, you know, it's okay. And it's, it's not like drinking a beer. And I think I took that way too far, to be honest, even from the beginning. But I will say I was kind of the last one to leave the party and I could drink more than other people. And my tolerance was a blessing and a curse, obviously. But in 2010, I was in a really rough place with work. I was still in the army. My husband was stationed somewhere else. So we were separated and I was drinking alone. And because I was sad and stressed and miserable. And that's probably when it really started as a a crutch. And then over the last 10, 12 years, it's just gradually gotten where I knew it was out of hand. And the way I I may end up describing it is it was like one, it's the straw that broke the camel's back, but I can, you know, clearly recognize this straw that was added and this straw that was added until it became too much to carry. So I'll stop there and see if you... (laughs) Of course. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I don't think I've ever talked about this almost like made up hierarchy and you mentioned it of Mm. of alcohol you know it's like if it was a pyramid or a triangle I'm Mm. writing notes here and there's like wines all the way at the top I feel like being a wine connoisseur like Mm. it's like you made it like you are you're classy basically and then and then if you're walking down the street and you see cans of like mixed drinks or just like little airplane bottles then that makes me feel like that's higher on the I mean lower on the hierarchy and maybe that's Mm -hmm. just my perception but I feel like it's really interesting to note the distinction Mm -hmm. even within it's all alcohol but within the products and how that basically just puts us in a different category of drinker because I bet that if you liked wine and you were getting to know about it and distinguishing maybe some flavors 
it's almost like a blanket of justification and mm-hmm. it just takes longer. So it, it's just, I think it's just interesting that how we perceive different drinks is different, even though they're all just the same alcohol. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was, you know, like, oh, I'm having a glass of wine at the end of the day. That's fine. But I wasn't having a glass. I was having a bottle, you know, it, but that's not what I, that's not how I explained it to people. So yeah, it was very dangerous for me. Yeah. Yep. And you, you said that you, you pinpoint when you started to drink out of sadness and loneliness. Mm-hmm. So were you able to pinpoint this in hindsight or in the moment, were you able to identify, oh, you know, I'm, I'm drinking to numb out or I'm drinking because I feel lonely or was this more of a later realization? No, it was absolutely at that time. I had two coworkers and I don't like to use military terms, but we were all platoon sergeants. So we all had 60 people under us and we were all stressed. We, these were, you know, men in their forties that were Mm -hmm. talking to me about how much they were drinking. And the three of us said, maybe we should go because the military does have um, available help, right? Okay. I need help with this alcohol abuse, but it's a a bit of a stigma, of course. Um, And we, but we, the three of us did talk about going to get help together so that it would shine a light on the amount of stress that we were under because of our position, but we never did it. Of course, I definitely wasn't ready to put myself out there like that. And one, I wasn't ready to ask for help. I wasn't ready to stop drinking. (laughs) So I definitely knew at the time that, that it was a problem. I just thought I could get it under control by myself. Yes, I hear you. And, and, you know, we, I keep bumping into these stories week after Mm -hmm. week of these insights come Mm -hmm. for many long before we stop drinking, you know, it's almost like the work starts in the brain a lot of the times versus in active behavior. So I'm just, I mean, the fact that you were able to talk to even just a couple of people was Mm -hmm. very brave at the time. And then for the next decade or so, or so, Mm -hmm. like you said, were you still having fun engaging with alcohol or was it just more of like, this is just what I do. I drink a couple of glasses and I just do it because it makes me feel better. But how was the internal relationship with alcohol during this like chapter that you mentioned after you started using it as a Mm -hmm. clutch? This is a good question because I think I, I, I think I was still having fun. Um, there were times when we went to, you know, we were, I lived in Southern California, so we went to wineries and we, you know, blah, 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 did the fun stuff. But I can also distinctly remember, you know, planning my day around the fact that I needed to stop on the way home to get a bottle of wine. And at one point I was a, uh, after I got out of the army, I was a corporate flight attendant. So you, a flight attendant on private jets and, I would land and get home at midnight and still feel like I had to drink a bottle before I could go to bed, which is obviously a huge sign. And my husband, I can remember clearly he came downstairs and he was like, what are you doing? You know, this is, it's midnight. You should go to bed. And I said, I want to unwind, you know, from my hard day. And there were signs like that, you know, that's not fun. That's let me sit here in the dark watch a silly TV show and and make sure I get this entire bottle into my system. And I mean, telling it now, it's kind of sad. uh, And I knew it was sad at the time, but I would still make those justifications in my head. So there was a little bit of fun and a little bit of whatever that is. (laughs) 
Yes, of course. I hear you. Thank you for sharing. And if you don't mind me asking, was your husband a normal drinker, like him having these interactions with you of like, what are you doing? Did it, did it bug you? How, how was this affecting your relationship? And if you are okay saying what type of drinker he is? Absolutely. Because it's an important part of the piece. I mean, we would go drink for drink in the beginning. He and I drank all the time in our relationship, whether we were at home with, with drinks or out in um, a social setting with drinks. So I thought that he was, I was like, who are you to tell me, you know, you can't just stop either. Cause he would often, he would say, well, I'm going to stop for a week. And I would say, good for you, you know, but I'm going to do what I want to do. So it did affect us. It was, I was, I was convinced that he would not be able to stop just like I would not be able to stop. But I will say that he has quit with me and all of our friends have just been in awe of him because I didn't, I didn't realize the difference. I think that I can say I am an alcoholic. He is not an alcoholic. Um, He could drink and he liked to drink, but he had no problem putting it down like I did. So in, in I can look back and say, wow, there were so many problems in our relationship that were caused by my drinking and how concerned he was about me. But I took it as um, you're trying to control me. You're trying to tell me what to do. You have the same problem I do. So it's interesting how amazing the last, you know, five months have been because I have my friend back and he's so happy that I stopped drinking that we've just, it's just been amazing. Huge difference. Oh, I love hearing this, you know, and it's, it's so complex because I feel like I relate to you and I don't know if this resonates at all, but I feel like sometimes Mm -hmm. being the one that is the one that really has the problem feel like in my, in my case, you know, I have Mm -hmm. an eating disorder background and depression, like all these Mm -hmm. things. And sometimes being with someone who's in my mind, a little bit saner, (laughs) sometimes that is hard for me because on my bad months or moments or chapters, it's, it's really hard to love myself through that like lens of accepting Mm -hmm. the parts of me that are just what they are and not great. And then being with someone who obviously still sees value in me, but sometimes I don't see the value in myself because I kind of compare myself to, to him and how he's quote unquote better than me, but it, it's just mm-hmm. really hard sometimes, but also such a blessing. Absolutely. I, I, I've had anxiety for years and I, you know, take medication and I can remember having these arguments with him probably while I was drinking saying, I'm taking these pills and I'm doing this and I'm doing all the work and I'm trying to make things better. And what are you doing? You know, and I can remember just being so angry because he, I didn't understand how much my behavior was affecting him. I didn't understand that it was, he was sad. He wasn't mad at me. Right. He was sad. (laughs) So, but yes, I've definitely felt like that. Like, why am I the one who's always trying to fix myself? And you're not. But, you know, nobody's perfect. He's not perfect, but he's a good guy. (laughs) Yes, yes, I hear you. But I I am really glad you have each other. And this is maybe like a, I want to get back to the progression of your drinking. But just a quick side note, because I do hear you say, like, I didn't want to be told or Mm -hmm. controlled or told what to do. In terms of sobriety, have you felt like having to be sober or quit drinking feels like controlling or feels like... uh, you get a case of the effort sometimes like, why do I have to do this? Why, why do I have to be under control? Does that play a role in your sobriety? 
actually, I've definitely had those feelings of why can't I be normal? Why can't I be a normal drinker? You know, it's just so frustrating, but I feel, and I am a bit of a control freak. I am in control now. I, I decide if I'm going to drink and ruin this and, you know, go back right back down that road again, or mm-hmm. if I'm going to, I've told all three of my children what I'm doing. I can't, you know, that's one of my biggest motivators is I, I can't go back because I have an 18, 16 and 10 year old looking at me, you know, seeing what I'm drinking, checking what's happening. And, but I feel the control. I feel I'm in control right now. It's not every day is perfect, but I, I like that feeling. It feels good actually. Um, Whereas with the, when I was in the really the depths of my using, it was like, Oh, just, suck it up and and start again. You know, you'll feel better once you start drinking. And I didn't have the control of the alcohol had it. So I feel better now. Yeah. The the word that comes to mind as you're sharing this thought process is you're you just feel empowered, you know, mm-hmm. you almost like took took your power back and 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 made yes. the choice, which I think is you really important because I do feel like sometimes addiction makes us feel so defeated, but I feel yeah. like the choice to claim our power back is there, even though there's a part of us that just we can't control and we have to surrender and accept. There's also this part that we can pick up and take responsibility for for -hmm. ourselves, which is really hard. (laughs) But you are doing it. And I want to know, Catherine, how did this progress? So you were in this stage of just like drinking and having a bottle of wine in order to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. What happened later? How did it get worse? So, um, the time that I was mentioning where I was in the military and it was stressful and I was sad and I ended up, um, getting pregnant with my son and I was able to leave the military. So I had no problem not drinking while I was pregnant. And then it's funny because I was talking to one of my friends about this and it makes me feel horrible to say, but I think it should be said. I think motherhood changed me and the way I drink and, I would say, oh, I'll put the baby to bed and then I'll go relax and have my wine. And um, so it was kind of a different, it wasn't a work-related stressor, but I was still using wine to medicate, you know, the stresses of being a mom. And I don't like saying that because being a mom is a wonderful job and I love my children, but it's a weird journey to go on. So that definitely um, affected, it was just, it was always a bottle. We would meet, my husband and I would both have a, our own bottle of wine each night, just basically every night. And I'll fast forward just a bit to, I'm trying to remember years. Um, I think my son was about seven and I knew I was drinking too much. I had, um, we were staying with my in-laws for a little bit and I would drink with them, which was normal. And I would go down to the basement to go to bed and I would continue to drink and sneak bottles and things like this. So I actually told my mother-in-law, that I was worried and that I needed to cut back. So again, I wasn't ready to quit. So for about a year, I was um, measuring half a bottle of wine into this giant Pyrex glass um, measuring cup. And that was like, okay, you're allowed to have this. And then you go to bed. And I started drinking those um, light seltzer things. And then, so I was trying to change everything. I, I even saw a therapist and, he goes, well, I'm a recovering alcoholic and it's kind of all or nothing. And I was like, nope, I'm not ready for that. But I will say it is so much more work 
to monitor yourself and try to keep it in check than to just stop completely. But I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> yeah, the mental gymnastics are figuring Ugh. out how much and when and mm-hmm. what time. And yeah. it, it, it yeah. is a lot of, of yeah. mental space. And I will let you know that it's not the first time that I say this on air, that motherhood is the... <laughs> most amazing and most triggering thing all at the same time. So please do not feel bad because you are in good company with all the moms, whether they have drinking problems or not. We all feel like we want to eject the present moment multiple times a day. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I did that year and this is when we lived in Virginia and I was sort of doing okay, but I was also just me and my son in our condo and my husband was traveling a lot. And, um, I could kind of control it. So we moved to Colorado and I met this wonderful group of friends who genuinely are wonderful people, but they drink a lot. And my measuring things and monitoring just went right out the window. And I will never blame anybody else but myself for my drinking and my behavior and all that. But it because they drink so much and so often, it was like this green light, go ahead, open another one, have more. Everybody else is, it's totally fine. But my behavior was so different than theirs. You know, theirs would be on the weekend, you know, together because we were all having a party, but mine would be, it turned into at my lowest, I guess I would drink with other people. And then I would come home and open more wine. And my husband would go to bed and say, don't you think you should go to bed? And I said, no, I want to be by myself. I want to, I didn't say I want to be by myself. I said, I wanted to watch my shows and relax. And it was just, it was so much, so much wine. And then I switched to vodka and then, you know, IPAs because Colorado's full of those fancy beers and, and not to be, you know, overly gross, but my stomach was rebelling and my body was rebelling. Mm-hmm. And I, I was taking acid medicine every day and, it was, I was so saturated by the end. And this, and then by the way, in the middle of all that COVID happened. So then we just all homeschooled our kids and then met in the, in the driveway at three 30 and started drinking, you know, but I, <laughs> it was, it was so much, but it was this particular group of friends made me think that it was okay to keep going. And I was definitely not in control at that point. Yeah, between COVID and you being surrounded by more normalization of it than usual. I mean, it was a formula for like the best permission slip you could give yourself. And and you were sharing how, you know, the wheels were starting to fall off. You could feel more effects in your body. Were you getting enough sleep? Were you having like more anxiety because of it? Any other effects? Absolutely. I mean, my sleep was dreadful. I'd wake up every day or every night at 3 a.m. and I, and being 45, I love to like blame it on menopause. It was like, oh, these night sweats, you know. And I, right. <laughs> of course, when I stopped drinking, it doesn't happen anymore. So um, I blamed a lot on that. But sleep was terrible. I would take a nap almost every day. And then like because I was so tired, but so that I could do it again later. Just and I gained a ton of weight, which made me feel awful. Not, you know, I... I don't like to even talk about weight, but just the feeling of it was, mm-hmm. was so uncomfortable. And then I would go to Orange Theory, hungover as all can be, and oh, look at my workout. I burned 500 calories, and then I'd have two bottles of wine. So it's right. like, good for you, but you're not getting anywhere, you know. 
I can't, I kind of lost track of your original. Oh, lots of shame, lots of guilt. I was making horrible parenting choices. We have a, like a little restaurant pub right up the road. I would go there before the bus came with one of my friends and have a few beers and then end up staying there. And sometimes we'd leave our little one at home and I'm ashamed to tell this, but I think I should, you know, we'd leave him at home and go five minutes up the road thinking that that was okay. And Mm -hmm. it's not. And he even, he even told his teacher that he was scared that mom and dad were at the pub and he was alone and he was scared. And Oh, this is hard for me to tell because I'm so ashamed of myself. But at the time I was like, you can't tell your teachers that stuff. Don't do that. And honestly, last week I said to my son, I was 100% wrong. You absolutely should tell your teachers if you're scared. And if mom and dad are, you know, you were right. And I was wrong. And I am so sorry. And it felt good to be able to tell him that because my behaviors changed. But I have just looked back and thought to myself, what was I thinking? What, how did I justify things like that? So that's oh, hard. Oh man, I'm getting so teary <laughs> because I'm a mom too. And I've made some like similar mistakes on my journey. And I have a good friend who's a therapist and she also is a mom and she always shares and gives me encouragement of, you know, the repair tool and like what mm-hmm. you did in having that conversation with your son was exactly what repair is instead of you know, him feeling like he was wrong or filling in the gaps, like kids are always filling in the gaps, but you basically went back and filled in the gap with clarity versus anything that he could have assumed. And that is really powerful. I think you, you're teaching your kids so many good lessons just by basically being a living amends to them. And I really hope I, you, you said it was a huge motivator. Your kids are, they are the same for me. And Mm -hmm. it's, it is really such a driving force and you're a really good mom. Well, thank you. I'm I'm trying. (laughs) So what happened, you know, between this bad group of friends, well, not bad, sorry for the friends who are listening, the um, (laughs) justification friends that didn't have a problem, but loved to party and COVID and all of that and your, your health kind of progressing into just having more difficulties. What did you have a low moment? What happened? So, Lots of fighting with my husband. And I could remember saying, listen, if I can't get it together, I'll do 30, 30 days in a treatment center. Just give me some time. Let me try to get it together. And so there was probably, let's say the last year was me trying to figure out how I could control this. But once I, you know, had a certain amount, it was done. I was just off the rails until I passed out. So, um, there was a few things that happened, but I'll, I'll kind of, I'd like to tell the story of, of that last big drink that yes. was 21st of September. I have a wonderful friend whose husband passed away from cancer and huge battle. I mean, it went away, came back, went away. And I'm at, so the 21st of September was his memorial. And I'm sitting there thinking he would give anything to be here. And I'm actively killing myself with this. And so after the ceremony, it was at a um, golf course and one of my friends was like, oh, we got to go get a drink. And I, I remember thinking, geez, you know, I, oh my gosh, it's only two. And for me, if I start at two, it doesn't mean I'm ending anytime soon. So um, I said, okay, you know, and I went to the bar and the bartender at the memorial service at this golf course, he goes, well, my name's Fish. 
but not because I like to swim because I used to drink like a fish, but I'm 10 years sober. And I thought, Oh my God, I want to be able to say that. I want, I want to be like fish. And it was just this, these series of events. And, and to be totally honest, I drank there. We met up at the pub. I drank there. I stopped at the liquor store next to the pub, got a bottle of wine, ordered a pizza at nine o'clock at night. And when I woke up in the morning, I was walking down the stairs and I was like, I don't remember if I finished that bottle. And I saw the you know wine rack and I was like, yep, I finished it. It's gone. So I don't know how much I consumed, but it was so much. And it was still with having these thoughts of, I want to be 10 years sober. Um, my good friend wishes that he could be here with his family and he died, you know? Um, so it was these crazy thoughts. And that day I was going to the airport and I looked up um, rehab centers in Denver, which also two weeks before that I had seen on the news, a thing about the, a woman's recovery center specifically for women in Denver. And that's who I Googled. I texted my husband. And I said, I need help and I need to go to this place. And that I was in the airport doing all this and trying to make arrangements. And um, that was like the last straw, except as you know, the 24th, I went to the, I was in, um, on that trip and I had two glasses of wine at the hotel bar. And I was like, all right, that's it. I'm done. So I feel like I kind of had to say goodbye to it instead of that horrible night that I had had a few days before. Well, shout out to fish first and foremost, <laughs> I know. wherever you are. <laughs> because, <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds like it was a series of things, like you said, and yeah. you actually being ready to, to take mm-hmm. the leap and, and to receive the series of things as a wake up mm-hmm. call, almost instead of an aha moment, it sounds more, instead of a rock bottom moment to me, it sounds mm-hmm. like a, like a wake up call mm-hmm. in terms of an internal wake up call. And I guarantee you that your husband probably felt a humongous relief when you reached out and let him know that you needed help, you know, letting your family know that you were ready. That's, that's a huge, mm-hmm. huge deal. So that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. And, and, and thanks for sharing. I love that story and having that moment where you're thinking about the people that are gone and would love mm-hmm. to live and how this basically mm. is just a progression into not living. Yep. Not living, not even just dying, but I wasn't living. I was drinking, drunk, sleep, hangover, drinking, drunk. Sleep. It was the same. I was like in this beautiful place. We finally moved to Colorado where we've always wanted to be. And I was basically kind of sick all the time, you know, well, because of the drinking. So to your point, I wasn't living even when I was alive. And that, I, that dawned on me too. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you finally got where you want to be. And did you end up going to the rehab place that you Googled or how did that first chapter, first month, just, first 30 days look like? Yeah. So I, um, I did, but it took a few weeks. So I did a 90 day IOP, which is intense outpatient program, I think is the right. Yes, you're right. (laughs) Thank you. So it was three days a week, three hours of group, one hour of individual, and then one hour with a, like a life coach too. But I have to say that before I could get into the IOP, which I believe was about three weeks, I listened to Cafe RE every day. I walked the dog, put in my um, earbuds and listen to somebody's story on Cafe RE. And I was like, 
that's me, that's me, that's, you know, it's, it's, I, I've heard it so many times on this podcast, but not the guy under the bridge, you know, that's homeless and lost everything. These were people just like me mm-hmm. that were trying to live life and battling this addiction. Um, so I did start the program and I absolutely, that was another with all these women in this room and re- looking at them going, I never would have thought, and I never, you know, and that's how people looked at me. Like, honestly, my friends were like, why are you doing this? Well, and then some people would say, well, it's really great that you're doing it before it really became a problem. And I was like, it was a problem. I just didn't show you that it was a problem. <laughs> Cause a lot of people think a lot of people in my circle think, well, you didn't get a DUI and you didn't get arrested. And nothing big happened. So they don't really understand how much a hold alcohol had on every part of my life. So being with women that did understand that was huge for my recovery journey. Yes. How do you feel now that you're on this side of the microphone sharing your story? (laughs) It's strange, but I'm, I'm happy to do it because, you know, what, I, people would say one little sentence that resonated with me. And if I can say one little sentence that might get somebody's attention or resonate, that's great. I just want to help as many. I don't know. I want people to know that they're not alone. I yes. think that's the big. Yes. I, I When you reached out, I was really happy that you did because it is such a milestone moment in terms of just for many of us to just pay it forward, right? Because mm-hmm. there were maybe words or sentences, like you said, from others that you found yourself in. And mm-hmm. I think it's really neat when listeners then yeah. become the people that that share, you know, and other than finding community and finding almost like your story in other women and other people, how was, you know, you're still in early sobriety five months yeah. in, but was it physically hard for you the first 30 days? How... How was that for you detoxing from alcohol? Um, it's funny because the, the, that program offered, you know, help detoxing if you needed it. And, um, you know, the first interview was, okay, how much have you been drinking? And then I said, well, I haven't drank for a week. And she said, you didn't need help detoxing. (laughs) I was like, Mm -hmm. I guess not, you know, so I didn't have, once I made up my mind because, and I just want to really quickly in the middle, in last summer, I decided I would do 30 days without drinking just to show myself that I could. And I made it five days. And every one of those five days was horrible. I was like, all I could think about was drinking. I'd go to bed at seven just to shut my mind up. And then by the fifth day, I was like, I did five days. That's pretty good. I think we should go to the pub. And (laughs) so it was funny to compare that trying to do 30 days to my mind is made up and I'm not going back. And I outed myself everywhere I could. And I will say, telling my husband and my mom, I said, mom, I don't want to let you down, but I'm going to try to do this. And she was so happy because she's been worried about me for years and years. So once I outed myself, I mean, I even went to our local pub and said to the bartender, I'm not drinking. I'm going to rehab. It's, you know, everybody needs to know. (laughs) Um, So physically, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I think if I can remember, it was more of just sort of a sadness. Like somebody on the podcast used the word, I'm feeling nostalgic. I don't have cravings, but I feel nostalgic sometimes, like missing that whatever it is about drinking that's enjoyable. 
And I, that's, that resonated. So maybe that's how I felt the first 30 days, but I was starting to feel better physically and I was not taking acid pills and I was um, still going to work out and tons. I mean, the, the, the initial bloating just, you know, was falling off me. So that felt great. And I know it doesn't feel great for everybody, but I will say that mostly I was feeling so much better than when I was hung over all the time. Yes. And I mean, you said nostalgia for me, I, I keep <laughs> sharing and thinking how it's also, it's a grieving process, right? And, and grieving is normal mm -hmm. and grieving is a cycle and, and feeling some, some sort of loss, I think is very yeah. normal when we, when we choose to give it up, you know, it, it is a huge life change. And mm -hmm. especially for those people where not everything was bad, where you did have mo good <laughs> moments with it, it's, it is like breaking up with a person. It's full of ups and downs for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I like that you share almost like the power of your mind. I, I'm a runner and I feel like mm -hmm. it's crazy mm -hmm. depending on how long your distance is, your mind right. adjusts. So like you said, those yes. 30 days, every day was hard. But for some reason, when you were so committed to the decision, then 30 mm -hmm. days, it's almost like you don't think about the time when the distance mm -hmm. is much longer and then the mind adjusts accordingly and then the body adjusts accordingly, which is insane mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Just the power of the mind. But I'm, yeah. I, I just feel what I hear from you sharing your story is that you had this, it was a resolution. Like you were firm in your resolution of being done. You know, the 24th yeah. was your goodbye. And I feel like in a mm -hmm. way was almost like this setting of this massive intention or declaration of mm -hmm. I'm done. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one, something you just said, the power of the mind, some of the, or I don't, I sort of started in the middle of Paul's um, podcasts. So I don't know. I didn't start at the beginning, but what really uh, helped me was the beginning of the podcasts. A lot of it was the scientific explanation mm -hmm. of what the alcohol is doing and why, because I'm a pretty strong willed woman. And I was like, why can I not control this? Why can I not just say no? And having it explained to me, the science of the brain and what was really happening, it made me feel like, okay, I, it's, I don't know how to say this quite right. It's my fault, but not really. It's not really all my fault. You know, I'm not weak and I'm not, <sighs> pathetic. It's, it's, there's a lot happening in there. And that really helped me to understand and stop beating myself up. So that was a big part in the very early um, stages for me to understand. Yeah, it it's doing. not, it's not a willpower issue either. And, <laughs> and that helps a lot in terms yeah. of the mm -hmm. shame, like you said, because sometimes the mm -hmm. shame is what actually keeps us in it for longer. Because I mean, I feel like shame just mm -hmm. destroys all hope in ourselves yeah. and, and just recovery in itself. So I'm really yeah. happy that you were able to kind of make that distinction. And other than, you know, you went to IOP, you were listening to the show, any other resources <laughs> that were helpful and, and continue to be helpful for you? Like, what did you have to do with your day to day and your just your habits of picking up wine at the liquor store? <laughs> I had a, a, a couple things, but I did like assign one of my friends. I said, if I, you know, my husband's a pilot. So I was like, COVID was a little weird, but he's traveling again. And I said, if he's not there, can I come to you? Um, mm. And the funny thing is, if I'm leaving my neighborhood, you know, if I take a right, I go to the liquor store. If I take a left, I go to her house. And so that was my plan. I was like, if you ever find yourself in the car, you better go to her house and not 
that liquor store, at least go there first. So that was one of my kind of safety plans. I would drink tea instead of anything else in the evenings. I did join the Facebook page for Cafe RE and I will say a lot of times when people reach out, it, it just, I don't think they realize how much that helps. Like reaching out and saying, I'm having this horrible experience or I'm on day one again. And I'm like, it helps me to either respond to them or be like, okay, you're, you know, the community, right? We all, we understand each other like no one else can. I will say that I've been to one AA meeting and I've been to a couple of other different types of meetings. I haven't been good, I guess, about making sure I go to all of these meetings, but I did go to one. I'm trying to be careful about how I say this. I went to one and there was so much talk of people's relapses that it gave me anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that just happened to be that day. And I don't want to turn anyone off from that, you know, trying these things. Um, But I, I thought, honestly, I was like, well, I would rather have been at Orange Theory working out than there because now I'm feeling anxious. But I've met some, I've met one friend in IOP that we, every week we meet and we have coffee and we're fostering this relationship. And I think that's been really helpful too, to have that person from IOP to still be in my life and, um, and, and knowing we're there for each other. So I'm not sure if that's the best answer. Yes, and you know, you don't have to feel <laughs> bad or want to shy away from your experience in AA. That was your experience. Mm-hmm. It happens to a lot of people. And, you know, you, instead of, I don't know, you pivoted into doing what feels right. I think that a big yeah. part of recovery is honoring what feels right because it's already really uncomfortable <laughs> sometimes. So yeah. if it also doesn't feel, some parts of it need to feel good in order for it to stick. You know, I'm a big believer of that or else... You're just in misery on the other side as well. And I really don't think that that that's the point. But I really appreciate you just, you know, trying to protect and, and, you know, meetings are not for everyone. And it may have been the day. It may have been the meeting. Who knows? But um, yeah, thank you for sharing. And then you did. I know we did talk and touch on at the beginning that when you started drinking to cope, it was out of like sadness or loneliness these days, Catherine, when you Mm. maybe have a feeling that you don't like or sadness or something that just feels like you need a blanket, what do you do? I have leaned so heavily on my husband. I'm like, I'm having this feeling and this is how it is. And he's poor guy. He's like, okay, great. (laughs) Like he doesn't really know what to say. And I'm like, I just like, whether it was a craving, I'm like, I just want you to know that I am having a craving right now. And it's very uncomfortable. And, you know, (laughs) so I'll say it. And somebody in my IOP said this, when you say something out loud, sometimes it loses its power. And so if I'm sad or I'm like, I don't, usually I have a really hard time describing and and knowing what I'm feeling. (laughs) It's a lot of just, I feel blah. And, um, but just saying it out loud to somebody is really helpful for me. And the reading, I mean, I have sort of turned into this crazy reading person. So like meditation didn't really work for me, but I will pick up my book and read a few chapters and it takes me to wherever that place is that the characters are in. And that gets me out of wherever I was, the negatives place. I love that. I love that tool. Just (laughs) being able to go to another land and and get, Mm -hmm. get yourself out of your mind. I I heard somewhere, I think it was Dax Shepard. And he said, you know, 
Mm. We're always thinking about ourselves. It's like, <laughs> think about something else. Think about someone else's lives, someone else's story. And what a, what a great way, but books to just insert mm -hmm. you in a different reality than your own, that sometimes it just feels so consuming how yes. much we are in the depth of our <laughs> own <true>. stuff. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right, Catherine. I feel like we could talk for a while, but we have reached the rapid fire round. So if you can okay. answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> what are you excited about right now? What possibilities? Oh, I was just ready for ice cream flavors. Um, it's coming. I, okay. I am excited right now uh, that I am doing, I'm halfway through the transformation challenge at Orange Theory. And we have two months to see how much um, body fat we can lose. But mostly, and I, because I can't stand it when women talk about weight and losing weight. My, Base pace has gone up. My push pace has gone up. I'm lifting heavier weights and I'm loving it. So my wins at the gym have really excited me. And so I'm kind of excited for the second half to see what the end result is. I love it. Yeah. Just feeling stronger feels really yes. good. Yes. If you could talk to Catherine on day one or young Catherine, what would you say? I would tell young Catherine, you don't need to drink to fit in with everybody. And then I would tell Catherine on day one, we can do it. We can do it. Whatever we set our mind to, we're going to do it. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Okay. The other day I listened to a podcast, your podcast, and everyone says mint chocolate chip. So I'm not going to say that. Baskin Robbins chocolate peanut butter. Yeah, I haven't tried that one. And yes, chocolate Ugh. chip, mint chocolate chip seems to be a favorite. Right <laughs> so now, my good. daughter is selling Girl Scout Thin Mint Ugh. cookies, and my brother yeah. loves mint chocolate chip and he says I just yeah. use those as like the scoop like instead of using a spoon yeah I'm just going after it with the cookie <laughs> that's amazing yeah <laughs> this is a great question for you Catherine it doesn't have to be recovery related obviously what book are you reading right now that you are just loving oh well I just finished the Lincoln Highway yesterday so now I'm in that weird place of trying to start something new because the Lincoln Highway is like 600 pages or something crazy wow. um yeah but I wanted to say, because I forgot, How to Quit Like a Woman was what I started reading on day one at the airport. So that book spoke to me in volumes about feeling like I could do it and I could be, be sober. And so um, anyway, finish Lincoln Highway and I highly recommend Quit Like a Woman. Yes, I love that book by Holly. She's <laughs> yes. fantastic. Yes. What parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Don't be so hard on yourself because this is the hardest thing that I've ever done, but the rewards in doing it have been amazing. So just be gentle with yourself and give yourself some grace. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. Okay. I've thought about this a lot. You may have to say adios to booze. If when you wake up in the morning, your bed looks like a crime scene because you fell asleep with a glass of red wine and now it's sunk into your mattress and it's ruined your entire outfit. And for the rest of my life, I will have to look at that mattress pad and remember that I did that. And it was a very low moment. <laughs> what a good reminder and what a good, like <laughs> sober checker. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Oh, Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your story. I can't wait to air this and I'm rooting for you and you. we will be in touch and we'll talk soon.
Thank you so much, Rita. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to share with you something that I read on Brené Brown's latest book, Atlas of the Heart. During the conclusion remarks, she said that something that her mother always taught her to do was to know how to sit with people when they were in pain. She said that her mother always said, don't look away, don't look down, don't pretend to not see the hurt. Look people in the eye, even when their pain is overwhelming. And when you're hurting and in pain, find the people who can look you in the eye. I thought that was very powerful because I want to be this person for other people. And I actually only have a handful of people that can sit with me when I'm in pain. I have a lot of wonderful people in my life, but sitting with people when they're hurting is really hard, especially when we're wired to fix and to help. You know, even I find myself sometimes giving unsolicited advice and I'm really learning what it means to just accompany someone with their feelings and not want to change them and not want to eject from the situation because it's uncomfortable. Just be there. I think that that's the power of community and I think that's the power of this movement and sobriety is that we do get to find people that are on this path of, you know, working through these hard life exercises, working through vulnerability. So just wanted to share. I hope this passage resonates with you all. Once again, it's from Brené Brown's new book that I just finished, Atlas of the Heart. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. thinking.